0: Welcome, Outtake episode with uh, Jordan Hagedorn. Thanks, Jordan, for doing For the Hobby. This is just a a tiny bit. We went on a longer format, and this is just 12 minutes of uh, him interviewing me, some stuff I hadn't talked about before. So here it is, and I commend For the Hobby to you. It's addiction if you're not able to put it down. If you can put it down and say, hey, it's time to do something else, I'll get back to it. That's a healthy hobby. I feel like it was like that. What got out of hand for me is when the business... Grew so much like things are now. It was some pretty insane hours at the peak.
1: Sure. I'm curious if you could share some insight into your leadership. You talk about integrity and just being a hard worker. A lot of us in the hobby are looking to create. I'm starting a card shop. I have a podcast. A lot of people are making moves in the hobby. We'd love to carry on your legacy and carry on your principles. And My personality is not such that I'm an inspirer, but I think I do inspiring
0: things. If you watch what I do, people might be inspired by that, but they're not going to be inspired by me other than I'm trying to put out an an inspiring work product, which is not a nice way to say I did these price guides. But again, Jordan, they fully blossomed when I started bringing in these outstanding teammates. I worked really hard and those first price guides that were essentially me were great works, but it really took off when I brought in some talented teammates. Sure. And some of them were more inspiring and marketing and things like that. I just I really wanted to be accurate. I wanted to be timely because you can have a great personality, but if you're making a lot of mistakes, I wanted to be trustworthy. There's two aspects of being trustworthy. One is competency and the other is character. If, if you're trusting a brain surgeon, you need to trust their competency more than their character if you say, hey, can you hold my wallet for an hour? There's no competency required. It's a character thing. Ideally, the the trust of somebody is based on character and competency. I try to stay in my lane and no one is competent in everything. Probably character also can be a minefield for some people. Some people have things that are weaknesses. I'm going to try to surround myself with people that are going to help me with any competencies that I don't have or any weaknesses that that would be character things that would be temptations for me. I don't think I have any. Horrible ones. I think doing life is a team sport. If you go through it in an isolated way, you're headed for trouble. It's better to have friends around you that are supporting you and uh, got your back. Always been blessed with great friends.
1: Speaking of consistency, one of my favorite athletes ever, Brett Favre, my favorite athlete, was pretty consistent, was on the field every game, broke the streak, broke the record, made it fun. You are all about making the hobby fun. You're doing hobby dinners, you're staying involved. You have a lot of us younger guys coming in. The next wave, inspiring us, helping us, giving us a voice, being on our podcast, your decision to come back in and share your knowledge and support. I got a choice. I can either keep all these secret things I've learned
0: <laughs> and take them to my grave, or I can do a daily podcast and share some stories and some insights. And insights probably is the right word. And meeting virtually or in person with people like you draw out insights. Well, I don't want to keep it to myself when I think this is the greatest hobby of all time it's just not good to be idle. What I stumbled into, Jordan, and you're a good example of this, I had a mass produced publication that really affected the whole hobby, it seemed like. We had a very dominant market share. There's lots of podcasts out there. There's lots of YouTubers. There's lots of card shows. I can't be everywhere. I have no desire to have employees. But what I can do with a simple podcast and doing some of these events, like you mentioned, I can influence the influencers. Younger than me, and they are inspiring to me. If I can give you or anybody else some insight that's helpful to you, if I give you 10 insights and five of them you think they're stupid, but five of them you think, hey, that's great, take the five that are good. So yeah, I want to influence the influencers and you're an influencer. So I'm delighted to spend time with you and looking forward to seeing what great things you're going to do.
1: It's a really tight-knit hobby and it's fun to know all of us have each other's back and we we want to grow the hobby. You talked about your work ethic, about how you were raised. Who you've been inspired by?
0: My dad, for sure. My mom, too. They're both really hard workers and high integrity and all that. So they're still around. They're 95, be 96 in the fall. I'm slowing down, but you're supposed to slow down with your 90s. So they're inspiring to me. And I've had some mentors. I've never really had a desire to have a single mentor, but I've always wanted to have multiple mentors. When I turned 40, I made a list of seven men who were, for the most part, older than me, The average was like old enough to be my older brother, not necessarily old enough to be my dad, although a couple of them were. I didn't know them all, but I just made a list and they didn't all live in Dallas. Over the course of the next couple of years, I met with all of them and became great friends with a few of them. A couple of them didn't connect as much, but all of them were gracious with their time. I realized there's a generational transfer of knowledge that's a two-way street. They had been places that I thought I was going. So for me to do that with people like you, it's pay it back and pay it forward. You're definitely a celebrator. And I'm not that much of a celebrator. From all those years of doing the price guide, you do one, and then you got to start on the next one. In my family of origin, I don't think we celebrated that much. It was, hey, you finished fifth grade. That's great. Hey, get ready for sixth grade. You know, so, As a little kid, it feels like you're growing, you're active, you're energized. You don't want An overwhelming challenge, but you want a challenge that gets your interest. And I've got a challenge to put out a podcast every day. It's not so onerous that I'm dreading it. I'm looking forward to it. I get to meet with interesting people like you and hear the stories. And it cues up stories in me that I thought, I forgot about that.
1: For me, in being a celebrator is I I like to have fun. I like to share stories and experiences with people. I am starting a local card shop. It's going to be a lot of hours, but I look at it as a privilege. I'm very excited to serve the community and serve the hobby and find the 10 and 12-year-old me that come in with their dad. I know at one point you had a card shop. You've been into hundreds of card shops. You are friends with a lot of owners of card shops. you have insights into how I should approach starting the card shop? We had partners.
0: Gervis and Wayne were my partners in that. We were not drastically different, but nobody would confuse us for being triplets or anything. But for you, I'm very analytical. And that had value in the card shop, but that's one side of the coin. The people aspect that you have is a critical aspect of making the shop fun, and that's going to happen. Sometimes there's a yin and a yang from the left brain and the right brain that is done through business partners or an employee that's that's uh, very detail-oriented, and keeping all the records. Maybe you like doing that stuff too, but most people that are very personable are cheerleaders, and they love it. So I don't know what your team is configured with. Like yep. I said, I hired... To my weaknesses, and nobody gets all the strengths. When you're hiring to your weaknesses, you want them to be the stronger, the better. If I were hiring clones of myself, I'd want them to be a little bit worse than me so I could be the top dog. But I'm not hiring clones of me. I'm hiring people who are going to add. Maybe that's something for you to think about if you've got a, an employee that uh, just wants to sort cards or do some of the stuff that you don't want to do because you need to be out there pressing the flesh.
1: Sure. What are the two must-have for a card shop? Is it the dollar box?
0: It's the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur has to be nimble. Whatever you think going in, you need to be prepared to pivot or to adjust. You may need somebody to come in and give you some perspective after you've done it for three months. If you're willing to share how you're doing, I get insights from other people that are doing card shops. There's a Facebook group for card shops. I'd get thick into that. Sure. Because it's territorially not competitive. somebody's in another state, they can give you all their tips and vice versa, and it's no skin off anybody's back. You're so relational, Jordan. But be ready to be nimble. Have showcases you can move around and have a seating area or a pizza area. And if that doesn't work, you're going to reconfigure it into a breaking area. Just don't be in cement. Be nimble. Don't say, I'm never going to bring in apparel or hats
1: or Pokemon. Be prepared Mm -hmm. to adjust. Sounds good. You bring such an analytical perspective to grading. Nat Turner has bought PSA, Collector's Universe, and he's already made some changes. Your take specifically to start with Nat Turner. Nat Turner is, in my opinion, the biggest basketball collector on the planet. A massive collection. He loves cards more than almost anybody I know. He's showing that with his actions and he's taking some things on in the hobby. Sold his company a few years ago for $2.1 billion. Could sit back and hang out, but is putting his money where his mouth is and is coming into the hobby doing some really special things. So being a pioneer yourself, I would love your take on Nat Turner, some of the moves he's making and, and the impact he's having on the hobby. PSA
0: is certainly the volume leader in grading and BGS. We've got a late start, but with the registry and all that, we've not caught up on the vo- volume aspect. They have more cards out there, but BGS is strong in its own. And Nat Turner knows that, but his collector perspective is invaluable. We couldn't ask for a better owner that has deep enough pockets to do the right thing and has a longer term horizon. It's not public where you've got to do something this quarter. I'm very bullish. He's a collector, and he's savvy, and he's in it for the long term. That's great. Rich would say, we did an episode about how he's made very decisive judgments that were unprecedented in the history of the hobby to come in and stop submissions, for example, and a pretty significant price increase right after he paid a world record price, way above what people would Say other than people in the industry, everybody would think he overpaid. So my hat's off to him. I think he's going to be a breath of fresh air for our industry. He's not tried to do it himself. He's brought in other partners with deep pockets, which again, heretofore, he seems like he's done an awful lot of things.
1: Sure, hats off. Well, and he's got that it factor. He really is a very smart guy, and he loves cards. That's a huge part. Like you said, he's not only a collector; he just loves cards. There's collectors that collect cards, but they don't love cards. Talk about what you hope for as you get older and reflect on your impact on the hobby and then the future. It's got my name on it, Jordan. I want it to do well. My former company, so
0: that's a, a strong loyalty there. But the company's not going to do very well unless, unless the hobby's doing well. I didn't have any numerical goals. Just I want to be going in the right direction. I'm doing the right stuff and let the chips fall where they may. And so I hope Nat Turner has that same approach. seems like he does. doesn't seem like he has extreme pressure on him on, or his partners to financially... Have a windfall immediately. They paid a lot of money, but it's a business that could continue to grow. They want to grow it. Yeah, I think my legacy rides with the hobby. Does well, then I'm going to be somebody that people say, "Hey, he was helpful during this period of time in in putting the hobby on the map." And then other people take it and run with it. But if the hobby peaks and then fizzles a little bit, and the main way that can happen is if prices just get so overheated that people get discouraged. Sure. And just quit in disgust. As long as there's some level of integrity, and uh, that's why grading is important, that there'd be integrity. You can't tell people to have restraint because all that means is everybody else should have restraint so I can get the good cards. <laughs> yeah, so it just doesn't work. People are always going to be wanting the great cards. And what they pay is relative to what they think is a good deal. If this goes for this, then this ought to go for that.
1: Sure. You're absolutely right. There's a relativity that comes with it. As the hobby rose, we thought certain cards were a better deal just because the hobby was so hot. Gene and Earl of Arena Design, the impact they had, and you've witnessed everything in the hobby from great designs to card brands coming and going, all these things. I have these cards. Brett is my guy and all these PMGs. And all the rubies and all these like higher end cards, they designed those. The beauty of cards, 90s, you talked on one of your episodes about 96, 97, 98, those years. You lived through that. You had the price guide and you had a front row seat to some of the most beautiful cards. It's an unprecedented time in the
0: hobby. It's not that they weren't appreciated back in the day. It's just that they were so rarely seen. We'd get a sample of, of some of the stuff, but they were what one, one per case. Some of these things, they were doing a lot of cases, but they're really hard to get these hits. That is the golden age of card design, thanks to the arenas. We should have been going gaga over the scarcity and beauty of those cards, but we weren't because they weren't in the mainstream conversation because they were too rare. Because if it was so great, how come FLIR went went out of business? Because their business model didn't work. How could that be when they're putting out all these beautiful cards? They weren't all these beautiful cards. They were too rare. So they were never sold. It It made it so difficult for us on the price guide front because we tried to do a multiple But the selling and buying was so sparse. Sure. Name your price, but it would be outrageous to name a price in those days that would have been even thousands of dollars would have been perceived as being outrageous,
1: much less tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or now millions. The Jordan Green would go for over a million now at this point. Do you think we'll see anything like that again? We're seeing it now.
0: It's just now more
1: contrived
0: with serial numbers that are one-of-ones, one-of-fives, things like that. And they're marketing to it, whereas in those days, there's more stealth marketing. It was beyond aspirational. It was so unlikely that you'd get it. You weren't going to buy up packs to try to get one in those days. Now, people would buy a case in hopes of getting any PMG red, much less green. Any, yeah. any card. Lightning in a bottle. And they went out of business, Jordan. So that's... <laughs> Unreal. So, if, yeah, so it was so great how they go out of business because people gave up. It was too impossible to find those. Nobody, once they got them, they weren't going to let them go.
1: But how beautiful is it that although they went out of business now, 20 plus years later, guys like us are fighting over those, paying tens of thousands of dollars to get them. It's honoring their work and their legacy. And, well, it's and, honoring and the
0: arenas, and but the former owners of Flair did not live happily ever after.